Welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Readiness Webcast Series, held on September 11, 2019, a year after Wayfair, How Do Marketplace Sellers and Facilitators Comply with Indirect Taxes? The panelists for the webcast were George Famolet, PwC's National Indirect Tax Leader, Susan Halffield, a partner in PwC's State and Local Tax Practice, and Dorothy Lowe, a director in PwC's State and Local Tax Practice. This excerpt consists of a discussion of post-Wayfair issues regarding application of thresholds and what tax compliance issues need to be addressed. Have a listen. Um, Getting ahead to our agenda for today, um, we wanted to look at Wayfair, the impact one year later. Um, We're also then going to go into the marketplace facilitator legislation. We've seen a number of states pass um, legislation in that area. So we're going to talk about some specific uh, state legislation as well as some of the common practical implications that we're seeing with the marketplace facilitator legislation out there and a few of the other consequences uh, intended or unintended that we're seeing in the law as well as the impact on contingent liabilities or tax provision uh, reserve issues and then uh, focus on some key takeaways for our discussion today. So um, with Wayfair, we've seen it. It's probably been one of the largest uh, indirect tax uh, issues in the news uh, that we've that we've seen in uh, many, many years. Um, You know, what we're hearing uh, and what we're reading about one example here up on your screen is the Wall Street Journal and what we've seen in all of the laws that have passed since the uh, Wayfair decision is essentially um, the states are coming after both, uh, you know, large and small businesses in an attempt to either um, close what are perceived uh, revenue gaps or increase revenue for the states. And so um, we're going to talk a little bit about that um, going to the next slide. So, Sue, in terms of the revenue, how have the states um, fared, if you will, in their ability to close those revenue gaps or raise revenue? Yeah, I've I've been very curious as to what the revenue estimates would look like post-Wayfair, especially since a lot was made during the case about the fact that the states were losing so much revenue. And as you can see on this slide here, um, there were a couple of estimates prior to the case coming down, one by the NCSL and one by the um, Government Accounting Office. Um, They varied fairly widely from each other, But a more recent study by the National Taxpayers Union Foundation um, was a study of the actual revenue estimates that the states themselves prepared to determine how much revenue they expected once they enacted their economic nexus laws. And as you can see, the state's estimates were a lot less than what they were saying they were losing prior to Wayfair coming down. Um, the, on average, the revenue estimates by the states was only 25% of the NCSL study and 50% of the GAO study. Now, a couple of caveats that I think of when I see these numbers is that these numbers are also merely estimates. They're not actual revenue um, that, we've, that we've actually seen because most of the states didn't even have enforcement authority begin until October 1st of last year. So we haven't even experienced collection for a full year. So I think it remains to be seen what the states actually get out of Wayfair. And it's something I know I'm certainly going to be staying, stay tuned for. Okay. Um, 
Well, moving on then. So, Sue, um, what are some of the practical issues that we're seeing in the application of the uh, Wayfair legislation uh, for the companies that we work with? Yeah, um, a majority of the states have already adopted these economic nexus laws, and most of them have enacted provisions that require a business to have either $100,000 of sales or 200 transactions before they have nexus. And while that sounds fairly simple, it seems like the devil is in the details a little bit. So some of the issues that we've seen our, our companies that we've talked with are facing um, are how to determine what to include in that, in that nexus threshold. Should they include all of their sales if, a, if they primarily sell at wholesale, for example? Or can they exclude those sales in determining whether or not they've met that threshold? Another big issue that we see is the application of the period which nexus might apply. The states vary on this as well. Some states, the period is a set period of January 1 to December 31. In other states, it's a rolling average. So every quarter you have to look back to see in the last 12 months whether or not you've established nexus. And of course, the obvious result or concern that that has is that you could have nexus one year or one quarter and not have nexus the next year or next quarter. But from a practical perspective, once you start filing, the likelihood that you would stop filing even if you don't have nexus seems fairly remote. Another issue around the, the transaction number that we've seen, which has led to some states not even really enforcing this transaction count, is what constitutes a transaction. Is it each time I sell to a particular customer? Is it an invoice that's sent to the customer? Or is it the number of items on a particular invoice? What constitutes a transaction? And finally, another issue that we're seeing in this area is the local tax um, threshold. So in states that have locally administered taxes where the state isn't administering those local taxes, do those thresholds actually apply on a city by city or a location by location basis? Or once you have nexus in the state, can all of the cities actually require you to, to file um, in those cities? So those are the types of issues that we've seen businesses deal with. And I think in this map, this is just a map um, that depicts the varying types of um, annual periods that the states might have. And so you can see it does result in, in a lot of questions that we, we get from clients as far as how to apply that, that rolling average as well. Yeah, I think, Sue, this brings up a good point. I mean, when you start thinking about just some of the uh, provision issues uh, with, uh, with Wayfair legislation, um, you know, where do you have nexus? How did you establish it? Um, different thresholds that you just mentioned is sort of highlighted in the map. Some of the ability, at least with smaller um, retailers who may come on and off in particular states, uh, depending on, you know, trailing nexus and other issues. Um, you know, it even brings in the question, how often uh, do we have to update? I mean, traditionally, a public company, you have to do quarterly, a lot of times because of materiality, at least in some of my clients, I mean, just look at it annually. So there, I think everyone's going to have to take a step back and sort of reassess uh, the process that they may have and looking at their, 
reserves around the, the Wayfair issues. And in some cases, some companies are going to have to come up with some uh, tools. I know there is some uh, tools out there to help you monitor and, and um, uh, keep track of the various uh, nexus footprint that you may have for each of your legal entities. So it'll just continue to be you know more of a challenge along with some changes that may be required in the billing system, tax engines, uh, invoicing system. So more to come on that, but I think we'll we'll look uh, we'll look uh, at the tax provision issues as an area where companies are going to have to spend some more time uh, with that. Uh, Dorothy, do you want to comment briefly in terms of um, you know the issues with compliance or tax engines that we're seeing at our companies? Yeah. So with respect to tax engines, one of the main concerns that companies have been speaking to us about um, is that with these increased compliance requirements in such a short period of time, you know, making sure that your tax system is robust, flexible, and capable enough to be able to handle these new jurisdictions coming online. And, you know, even if you're not filing in a jurisdiction currently, making sure that you're still correctly categorizing these products so that when that jurisdiction does become of relevance, it, in theory, would be, you know, more efficient to comply. And lastly, you know, audit is, is becoming more of a concern with these new jurisdictions. And so it's really critical to understand, you know, how technology is going to be able to support your, your, your audit process, making it mes less of a manual process, whether it be with data extraction or reconciliation. Great. Thanks, Dorf. And then, uh, in terms of purchasing, Sue, what are we seeing from our clients in terms of the tax consequences of Wayfair on on purchases? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, a number of businesses that have, were never impacted on the sales tax collection side by Wayfair could see some impacts because now the sellers that are selling to them that previously hadn't charged tax have started to charge tax. And in fact, I, anecdotally, I have heard that that some businesses are collecting tax on everything and they're relying on their customers to actually assert an exemption so that they can figure out what's taxable or not taxable in the complex rules that they're dealing with within the state. And so from a purchaser's perspective, we're also seeing changes to a purchaser's routine of how they review their transactions. Prior to Wayfair, a lot of purchasers thought if the vendor is collecting tax, I don't have to worry about that transaction. I should only look at transactions where no tax was collected from my vendor. But now, under the post-Wayfair world, a lot of these purchasers are actually changing that routine to make sure that tax isn't being over-collected by sellers that are just worried that they need to collect tax on everything. And the other trend that we're seeing is purchasers are thinking about implementing direct pay permits in places where they're allowed to do that so that they can remit the tax themselves rather than relying on the vendor to collect the tax or implementing structure things like purchasing companies or things like that that allow them to manage the liability themselves. Um, Sue, so I guess in the other thing, I, I, I deal with a lot of inbounds in my area of the country and, and, and speak uh, before them, uh, both domestically and internationally. And, you know, you do hear the common question. Um, they've heard about Wayfair and they say, um, you know, does this even apply to me? I, I mean, I'm, I'm I sort of just have sales into the U.S. What's, what's our response to that? So. Yeah, generally speaking, you know, for one thing, the Wayfair case didn't deal with an inbound seller. Wayfair was a domestic seller. So the justices really didn't have a chance to opine directly on whether or not Wayfair applies to inbound sellers. 
However, if you look at the case law around you know, other types of, of taxes for inbound sellers, it doesn't seem like there's anything in the Wayfair decision that would limit its application to only U.S. companies. And therefore, what we like to do is take a look at how large the inbound seller is and would they meet those transaction thresholds. And if they do, we really need to advise them on um, the, the judicial uh, language that's in the Japan Line case to try to determine whether or not the, under Wayfair they could be required to collect this tax. And what we see oftentimes with the inbound sellers is they, they're fairly resistant to, to collect the tax for a number of reasons, the difficulty in compliance and things like that. And so they might be looking at this more as a reserve issue or something along that line. And many of them, of course, also sell on marketplaces and that could actually solve some of their issue as well, given the prevalence of the marketplace laws as well. Yeah. Excellent insight, uh, Sue, on that important inbound issues. Yeah, and w one of the things that I thought we could talk about just very briefly um, is there was a case that just came out yesterday out of South Carolina that we had been following with a great deal of interest because uh, this was a South Carolina case against uh, Amazon services. And they were, South Carolina was asserting without a marketplace law that Amazon would be required to collect tax under the state's consignment definition. And the ALJ in that decision has held against Amazon and is saying that Amazon would be required to collect. And it generally seems to be on the basis that the seller in this case wasn't able to collect the tax directly from the customer because the seller didn't have a, a contact point with that customer and that seemed to be meaningful to the ALJ. I'm sure it's not over, but, but it's an interesting development because at the time, South Carolina wasn't asserting a marketplace law. Uh, but great insight, Sith. It's a case in, in the uh, we'll continue to follow, and uh, its impact is quite interesting in our discussions that we're going to have on the marketplace uh, facilitator laws. In terms of that, um, Dorothy, there's been a lot of um, a lot of law changes in this area. Can you give us a little bit of background in terms of the marketplace facilitator laws? Yeah. So now that states have nexus handled through Wayfair, um, you know, states can focus on collection. And the issue is that, you know, even though states can go after these individual sellers, states have realized that it's much, much easier to go after the marketplace facilitator to deal with noncompliance. And that really explains the proliferation of these laws in the last 18 months. And so the first step of determining whether these laws apply is really looking at the definition of the marketplace facilitator in each of these states. You know, unfortunately, with the speed of enactment of these laws, you know, there hasn't been able, the, the states haven't been able to consider a lot of policy issues with respect to these laws. And, you know, a lot of these state laws aren't uniform. And so, you know, states really, and companies really have to pay attention to the definition of a marketplace facilitator um, rule state by state. And so, you know, the key features of a marketplace facilitator, however, you know, are, are several key, key features. One is that the, the facilitator connects the buyer and the seller. Um, they list the, or advertise an item for sale on their platform. They handle and collect these funds and transmits those funds to the seller. And so those are the key features of a marketplace facilit facilitator in, in you know, a lot of these states. And when we deal with you know, tax collection, you know, these requirements also vary by state. 
but a majority of the states do require that the marketplace facilitator collect for all sellers. However, there are a handful of states that do allow sellers to opt out of these marketplace facilitator rules and collect, continue collecting on their own behalf instead. Yeah, I've I've really seen uh, uh, the both both arguments here from a marketplace perspective. It might be easiest to just collect tax on behalf of all sellers versus trying to pick and choose which sellers they actually or have the sellers opt in and out. Um, but when you think about it from a large seller perspective, when large sellers or sellers of complicated products like telecom and things like that that are very accustomed to already collecting tax. Being able to opt out does seem to, to make a lot of sense. So I know that that's a, an issue that is kind of an emerging issue because um, when you especially look at a telecom, for example, they don't just collect sales tax. They collect a lot of other taxes um, and they're probably in a much better position to be able to correctly collect those taxes than a marketplace facilitator might be. And so I do think that to your earlier point about these policy decisions that haven't necessarily been addressed by the marketplace laws due to the speed of enactment, mm -hmm. um, those we might see some changes so that the states can accommodate some of these types of issues as well. Agreed. And kind of going back to, to your point about Nexus, you know, marketplace facilitators really have to look at um, all their sellers when they're terminating Nexus. And then seller, even just one seller, can create nexus for the marketplace facilitator, right? And so, you know, then, you know, once the marketplace facilitator, you know, meets the, th the nexus thresholds in the different states, that will create nexus for all sellers. And that's really a point to take into consideration when determining your nexus footprint. And, and as we can see on our next slide, going to the map, um, you know, many, if not quite all, but we probably will get there at some point of states have already provided legislation. Yeah. And so this, this map represents all of the, the states that have enacted marketplace facilitator rules through October. And as you can see, that the, the trend is that the marketplace facilitator rules will really be the law of the land in virtually all these states. And it really shows that, you know, companies will have to look at, you know, whether or not the states have these marketplace facilitator rules and whether or not these marketplace facilitators rules apply and, and how the marketplace facilitator rules apply to them individually. One thing about the map here, too, is that um, there is a parish in Louisiana that has litigated that same issue that South Carolina was um, going after uh, Amazon for, and it's a, a Walmart case, and it's a parish in Louisiana. It's not the state, but um, that's an issue that's pending as well. Speak, speaking of marketplace facilitator laws, um, here's a couple of examples. Um, we won't uh, read them to you, yeah. uh, but uh, we thought we thought it'd be interesting just to sort of show you the language with a couple of uh, large states to, to give you a sense of what's going on um, here. Right. Dorothy, any uh, comments in, in terms of the different approaches that we've seen in uh, our East Coast, West Coast comparison yeah. here? So, so visually, you can see that there's a lot more to California statute as opposed to New York's, right? And in the next slide, we'll go through some of those differences. Mm -hmm. And so California passed its law a little bit later than a lot of other states. And as you can tell, it does appear that California was able to take into account some business considerations and policy concerns when they passed their, their rule. Um, and one of the 
more interesting things about California statute are the exclusions that, that you know, you note here um, with respect to delivery network companies, such as, you know, food delivery companies that you can order food on an app and, and have them deliver to you, or others that advertise TPP and don't really do much else. You know, and taking to, and, and to the point of taking policy considerations and business, business considerations into account, a couple of uh, months after California passed their statute, they actually, you know, amended their statute to allow de delivery network companies to opt back in to the marketplace facilitator rule to, you know, have that apply to them as well. And so just by comparing these two state laws, you can see the differences that the companies would have to mine through in order to determine whether or not a marketplace facilitator rule would, would apply to them in that specific state. And so the next slide will show you, you know, how many enforcement dates that companies have to be aware of too. And so this is just another data point that companies have to monitor and keep track of. So to kind of close this section out in summary, you know, a company would have to pay attention to the definition of a marketplace facilitator in the state and whether or not it applies to them state by state, how that marketplace facilitator rules apply to them state by state, and also when that marketplace facilitator rule was enacted and enforced. And we did have a question from the audience, uh, I believe related to the Wayfair potential over-collection for purchasers. And the, the question was, what can a purchaser practically do uh, if they're overcharged on something that is clearly exempt uh, from, a, from a seller? And really, there's a couple of things. One thing you could do is short pay the invoice. Um, that does, that's not usually really helpful to the seller, but at the same time, if you don't owe the tax, I have seen companies overpay the in, or uh, uh, not pay the invoice or underpay the invoice, I should say. Um, another thing is to apply directly to the state if the state allows that for a refund. Um, unfortunately, that is, that is a compliance burden for companies if tax was overcollected. Or you could just go back to your vendor and ask for the, the money back as well if you've already paid the invoice. So that's typically what we see companies do. Thank you for listening to this Tax Readiness Podcast. If you have any questions, please contact the speakers. You can find their contact information in the description of this episode. Thank you.